Welcome to the Murder Minute podcast. Today, the story of the Moores murders. But first, your true crime headlines. A Southern California man is being held without bail after gunning down the mother of his child during a child custody exchange at a police station. The accused murderer, 30-year-old Jacob Ryan Munn, dropped off his 17-month-old son at the Hawthorne police station sometime before 6 p.m. last Sunday, then retrieved a shotgun from his vehicle and waited. When the child's mother, 28-year-old Brenda Renteria, arrived to pick up her child a short time later, she was gunned down as she approached the front door of the police station. The victim's mother, who had accompanied her daughter to the police station, was not injured. After the shooting, Munn fled the scene in his vehicle. He was apprehended about three hours later. If convicted, he could face the death penalty. Two men in a Portland suburb called 911 to report that a burglar was hiding in the bathroom of the home where they were house-sitting. They had briefly left their nephew's house to walk his dog, and upon returning, they could hear commotion in the bathroom and see a shadow of a suspect moving under the door. Police and canine units descended on the home. They ordered the suspect to open the locked bathroom door, but got no response. With guns drawn, they broke down the door and encountered their suspect which turned out to be a Roomba vacuum cleaner, repeatedly knocking against the shower door. The Washington County Sheriff's Office shared the tale on their Facebook page, along with a photo of the robotic vacuum cleaner stamped with the word captured in red letters and body cam footage of the officers apprehending their suspect. A Minneapolis man is being held on first-degree attempted murder charges after throwing a five-year-old boy over a third-floor railing at the Mall of America last week. 24-year-old Emmanuel Aranda told police that he had gone to the mall intending to kill an adult, but instead grabbed a boy who was outside a cafe on the third floor with his mother. Aranda approached them, grabbed the child, and dropped him 39 feet to the ground, causing life-threatening injuries. Aranda told police that he had been coming to the mall for years trying to talk to women and was frustrated and angered by their rejection. He had previously been banned from the same mall for confrontations with shoppers and damaging property. His bail has been set at $2 million. The boy remains in critical condition with multiple broken bones and severe head trauma. Two Texas teenagers are facing capital murder charges after murdering a 53-year-old woman during a robbery of her home. The victim was the mother of one of the alleged killers. The accused, Daniel Saucedo and Matthew Dempsey, both 18, used Dempsey's key to enter the home of his mother, Mary Helen Dempsey, intending to burglarize it. They began gathering items from around the home, preparing to steal them when Mary Dempsey unexpectedly returned. She turned on her kitchen light and was immediately attacked by her son, who beat her repeatedly with a baseball bat and slit her throat with a kitchen knife. They then bound her with duct tape and covered her body with a blanket leaving it on the living room floor. They loaded the stolen items into the victim's car and fled the scene, later withdrawing money from her bank account at an ATM. When the victim did not show up for work and could not be reached, her concerned employers contacted Dempsey's daughter, who went to her mother's home and discovered her car missing and her body concealed under the bloody blanket. When authorities questioned Matthew Dempsey at his mobile home a short time later, they discovered bloody clothing concealed in a trash bag at his residence. Matthew Dempsey and his girlfriend were subsequently arrested, and Dempsey's girlfriend told police that he had confessed to her that he killed his mother. Salcedo was arrested a short time later, and both men are being held on $1 million bond. 
A Wisconsin teenager has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder for the killing of his grandparents last weekend. Alexander Krauss called 911 on Sunday and told the dispatcher that he had just killed his grandparents and needed to be arrested by police. When an officer entered the home in Grand Chute, they found 74-year-old Dennis Krauss and his 73-year-old wife Letha lying dead on their kitchen floor. Each of the victims had been shot in the head. In a bedroom in the home, police found a red folder with Alexander's typed out plans for the killing. He also told investigators that he had intended to cause harm at Nina High School, where he was a junior. The 17-year-old is facing two counts of first-degree intentional homicide and faces life in prison if convicted. A drifter who became a viral sensation six years ago is now on trial for murder in New Jersey. Caleb McGilvery, also known as Kai the Hatchet-wielding Hitchhiker, rose to fame after a six-minute profanity-laden interview with a local news station in Fresno after he thwarted an attack on two women by taking out their assailant with a hatchet in February of 2013. The clip has been viewed more than seven million times on YouTube and turned the frizzy-haired hitchhiker into an instant celebrity. He remained off the grid continuing to wander around the country and eventually crossed paths with a 73-year-old attorney named Joseph Galfi in May of the same year. The two met in Times Square, drank beers together, and then Galfi invited McGilvery to sleep in the guest room of his New Jersey home. He stayed with Galfi the next night as well and alleges that on the second night, Galfi drugged and raped him, and he fought back in self-defense. Galfi was found dead the next day after failing to report to work, and investigators found information on Galfi's cell phone linking him to McGilvery, who had written a post on his Facebook page claiming that he had been assaulted. Police apprehended McGilvery at a Starbucks in Philadelphia a few days after Galfi's death. He has pleaded not guilty. Those are your true crime headlines. For more headlines, check out the Murder Minute app in the App Store and Google Play or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Coming up next, the story of the Moors murders. But first, a quick break. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! Our story begins in January of 1961, where Millward's Merchandise, a small chemical distributor in Manchester, England, was the workplace of two peculiar people. Two people 
that didn't seem to quite fit in with her co-workers. The first was Eden Brady. He was known to keep to himself and be a generally quiet man. His co-workers said that despite his quiet demeanor, he was prone to frequent outbursts. And as if that wasn't enough, he had an obsession with Hitler's Mein Kampf that he kept hidden from his peers. However, the list doesn't stop there. Brady was also obsessed with fantasies of death and violence, and fittingly, the Nazi regime's countless atrocities. Our second strange yet quiet employee was Myra Hindley. She was the newest employee at Millwards, having began a job as a typist that month. Unlike Brady, Hindley showed no warning signs that she would become a devious killer, despite having a rough childhood. Hindley was similar to many of her co-workers. The biggest difference, though? she took an immediate liking to Brady. It wasn't long before she began to idolize him from afar, and within months, she finally mustered up the courage to speak to him. A few more months went by until they went on their first date. From there, there was no turning back. Their relationship developed quickly, with both of them diving into deep discussions centered around their violent fantasies. However, the fantasies weren't enough to keep them satisfied. They wanted to kill. Not because they had hatred in their hearts, sought revenge, or wanted to be criminals, but because they had longed for death for the sake of death. So they walked the streets of Manchester, stalking anyone that appealed to them in search of their victim. That's when they spotted their target. 16-year-old Pauline Reed, a friend of Henley's younger sister, was the unfortunate victim. The pair chose her solely because they believed that her death would not be seriously investigated. It seemed like their hunch was spot on, as on July 12, 1963, she vanished, leaving no trace behind. No one had seen Pauline prior to her disappearance, and little moved forward in terms of an official search until it was too late. Brady and Henley had already taken Pauline in their van and headed out of town towards Saddleworth Moor. Once the pair had driven far enough out of town, Brady slit Pauline's throat twice with a large knife. She bled out on the moors as Brady and Henley sexually assaulted her. They buried her body with the blue coat and white heels she was wearing and drove back into town as if nothing had happened. The couple had finally acted out their fantasy of taking a life. The satisfaction didn't last long. Immediately, they began to plan their next kill. The target? 12-year-old John Kilbride. In November 1963, Brady and Henley rented a car and pulled up beside John. They offered him a ride home, but he was hesitant. However, after giving him a bottle of sherry, he agreed and got in the car. Not long into the ride, Brady told John that they had to make a stop on the moor because he lost his glove and needed John's help finding it. Once they arrived, the same sequence happened again. Brady attacked John and attempted to slit his throat. He was unsuccessful, which led to sexually assaulting John Kilbride before strangling him with a shoelace. To immortalize the moment, Brady photographed Henley posing over the young boy's grave. This time, their hiatus lasted longer. It wasn't for another year and a half until the couple struck again. Their target this time was 12-year-old Keith Bennett. Keith was running late on his way to his grandmother's house. Brady and Henley, now noticing the boy's franticness, offered him a ride. As with the previous two victims, Myra announced that there was a stop in the moors they had to make. 
Once they got there, Brady told Keith that they were looking for his lost glove, and much like the other victims, they sexually assaulted the child before murdering him. It wasn't until the summer of 1964 that Brady buried Keith in an area of the moors that is believed to be where the other victims were buried. In this case, Keith's body was never found, but his family has continued to search for it over 50 years later. Three murders weren't enough for Brady and Henley. Before the end of 1964, they spotted 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey standing alone by a ride at the fairground, and they were set to make her their next victim. They approached the young girl and asked if she could help carry some things to their car. She agreed without worry, and when they asked if she could come home with them to help them unload, she got in the car. Unlike the previous killings, the pair carried out the murder within the confines of their own home. Leslie was bound, gagged, and forced to pose for photographs. The same story repeated itself as Leslie Ann Downey was raped and strangled. The next day, the pair drove her body to the moors, where she was buried near the other victims. By the middle of 1965, Brady and Henley seemed to be in the clear, despite their horrific actions. Searches had occurred, but no one suspected them. As a matter of fact, nobody had tried to link any of the disappearances and murders together. Then, the murder of Edward Evans occurred and sparked a change. On October 6, Brady met Edward Evans at Manchester Central Railway Station. For this murder, Brady and Henley decided to expand their group and include Henley's brother-in-law, David Smith. The two managed to get Evans back to their home where Smith was called over. Once he arrived, Brady attacked Evans. He struck him over the head with the blunt end of an axe and then strangled Evans with an electrical cord. Smith assisted Brady in disposing the body and all seemed to have gone according to plan. However, the guilt began to creep in on Smith. The next day, Smith called the police and the pair's plan to expand their circle failed. On October 7, 1965, Ian Brady was arrested while Meyer Henley was released the same day after claiming that Evans' death was an accident. Although she was released, it didn't take long as on October 11th, just four days later, she joined Brady in custody. The two would never be released. Even though they were now in custody, the full extent of what Ian Brady and Myra Henley did was not clear. They were arrested only for the murder of Edward Evans, which both claimed to have been an accident. At the time, Neither was a suspect in any of the other deaths they had acted out. As the police began to investigate, the story emerged and the true horror of the pair's actions was revealed. The police began their search at the railway station where Brady lured Evans. Brady made a crucial mistake and didn't claim his luggage. When the police opened it, they found nine pieces of child pornography. The pieces were photos of Leslie Ann Downey. It wasn't until that moment that Brady and Henley became suspects in her disappearance. With these new pieces of evidence surfacing, the police had enough to suspect that Brady and Henley were responsible for more murders. The police searched their house and found a notebook with the name of John Kilbride. The suspicions of the police grew, and they began to wonder how many disappearances the couple was connected to. The big breakthrough was when a large collection of photographs of Brady and Henley at Saddleworth Moor was found. From there, the hunt was on. 
over 150 officers combed the location in the pictures in search of clues. In less than a week, they found their first body. It was Leslie Ann Downey, who was easily identified by sight. It wasn't long until they found the body of John Kilbride. The body had been so badly decomposed that he could only be identified by the clothes he was wearing the day he disappeared. On the same day John's body was found, Brady and Henley appeared before a judge, but were only facing the accusation of the murder of Leslie Ann Downey. Two months later, they were officially accused of the murders of Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans. Each pled not guilty. The police called on the pair to provide evidence, and when they did, Brady spoke for eight hours, while Henley spoke for six. They stuck to their previous statements and denied all of the charges against them. They claimed that the death of Edward Evans was an accident, and that they were in no way linked to the others. Their stories crumbled at the trial when an audio recording of Leslie Ann Downey was played. The voices of Brady and Henley were clearly audible. They could be heard forcing her to pose for photographs and threatening violence against her. The two could plead all they want, but there was no way to explain this evidence. Ian Brady was found guilty on accounts of all three murders. Myra Henley was acquitted of the murder of Leslie Ann Downey. She claimed that the murder occurred while she was elsewhere. The public cried out for both of them to be sentenced to death, but the death penalty had been abolished in the United Kingdom only a few months before their sentencing. It's fair to say that had the death penalty not been repealed, their fates would have been very different. Brady was handed three consecutive life sentences, while Henley was handed two life sentences, plus seven years. While justice was served, two of their victims had been unaccounted for. Police had yet to connect them to the deaths of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. This changed when Keith's mother, Winnie Johnson, wrote a letter to Myra Henley. In it, she begged Henley to tell her anything she knew about her son's disappearance. Though she and Brady were incredibly adamant that there were no other killings, Henley appeared to be genuinely remorseful for what she had done. In November of 1986, she agreed to assist the police in searching the moors again for the bodies that they had never uncovered. Though they did not find the body of Keith Bennett, they did find the body of Pauline Reed. She was less than 100 yards away from where Leslie Ann Downey's body was found and only three feet underground. As time went on, Myra Henley downplayed her roles in the killing more and more. For years after the trials, she claimed that she was only involved in the luring and kidnapping of children, leaving Brady alone to commit the murders. This was proved to be not true based on evidence. In November 2002, at the age of 60, Myra Henley passed away she suffered a brain aneurysm that was linked to her pack-a-day smoking habit. Though she wished to be cremated, 20 undertakers refused to do so. On the other hand, Ian Brady was not remorseful and made no attempts to hide his past actions. Fully aware that he would never be free again, he felt no need to deny his crimes. In addition to the five children the pair confessed to murdering, he claimed that he and Henley murdered five more. None of the descriptions he gave matched any unsolved murders, and none of the killings were ever verified. In 2001, he published a book about serial killers, despite protests from his victims' families. In his book, he states that he does not feel remorseful for what he did, 
and denied the claims of insanity and psychosis. He states that he did the killings for the pure existential experience. Ian Brady spent 52 years in prison until he died on September 21st, 2017. His dying wish was that his ashes were to be spread across Saddleworth Moor. However, he was unceremoniously buried at sea. For True Crime Anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.